Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 24th, 2015. This is episode 1564 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday! 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 That's right, it's your time to, uh, to have your calls played on the air. And uh, we are going to take about eight calls a day, plus one for the expert counsel. I have some really great stuff lined up today. A lot of times I have to go through a lot of calls uh, to find the calls to put on the air today. Today I had home run after home run after home run. In fact, three of the calls that got skipped are just because they're the same as the first one. Uh, so if you are somebody that called in, what you're going to hear is the first call, and you don't hear yours. It wasn't because your call wasn't good. It's because, well, it got screened second, third, or fourth. Anyway... Um, I really enjoy answering your calls. If you want to be on a show like this, you can call the Think Line, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Uh, best thing to do is call from a quiet area. Make sure there's bars on your cell phone if you're calling from a cell phone, because there'll be nobody on the other end to tell you you can't be understood if you're all chopped up like that. Um, and uh, make sure you're, again, in a quiet area. No wheel, uh, what do you call wheelbarrows? You can have all the wheelbarrows you want around. You no know, chainsaws or weed whackers or anything like that in the background. Uh, make your uh, statement or ask your question immediately up front. Give your details following, and you'll be more likely to get through the screening process and on the air. Uh, many weeks I get as many as 30 to 40% of the calls on the air. This week I think maybe only 15%, uh, just because there were so many good calls and um, – a larger volume than typical, but it ebbs and flows, so keep trying if you haven't been on the air. Lately, I've been screening calls front to back, meaning I'm starting on like the day today, stuff that came in this morning and going backwards. Some days I go the other way around, but lately it's been a, kind of a, a, a way to get in is to call either Thursday or Friday uh, morning, and you're likely to get in. Anyway, I do also have another announcement for you guys today about expert council calls. Um I haven't done a good enough job of promoting the council, and I think some of you don't even know all the people on the council. So I'm going to start kind of doing a, a cool thing on Fridays. I'm going to send on Monday morning every council member a simple question for me in text and start playing them every week that they respond anyway. And uh, that will get you better exposure to all the council members, so maybe we can get more questions for people other than Keith Snow and Stephen Harris who seem to get 80% of all the questions. Anyway, with that, before I get into your questions for myself and uh, the one we have today for Mr. Harris, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you seven days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today is Fortress Defense Consultants. I'll tell you what, uh, I'm a big believer in the right to self-defense, the right to carry. I think every member uh, of this nation should, should be an owner of firearms and know how to use them. I really do. A responsible gun owner is a great gun owner, and we should have as many of them as possible in America. Right now, I think there's an estimated 55 million Americans own uh, a gun in the United States of America. I'd like to see that number go much, much higher, but I'd also like to see good quality training go along with it. Best place I know to get that training is Fortress Defense Consultants, and this is why I think the training is important. If you go out and buy a high-quality firearm, it is what it is. It's not going to change unless you do something really bad to it or fail to maintain it. It's going to do what it's supposed to do every single time. You go out and buy good quality ammunition. You got the you know the second rung in the uh, the three sides of the uh, operator triangle, and it's going to do what it does. 
I mean, ammunition is, is well-made today. Even the cheapest ammunition is well-made. Premium ammunition might be better, but, you know, it, it's all good. Uh, there are occasional misfires and hangs, but that comes to the next one. We'll get there in a second. But most ammo, you put it in the weapon, you pull the trigger, it goes bang, it cycles the weapon, you go on from there. The variable really is the operator, and that has to be addressed through training. You can't buy training like a product, stick it on the shelf or stick it in your pocket and say, when I need it, it'll be there. You actually have to take part in it, and it's, it's therefore the one that we tend to, uh, to neglect. So make sure you get good training, and if you have a chance to train with Frank, do so. Next up today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, where you can get Berkey water filtration systems from the Berkey Guy himself along with all the parts and service you need for your Berkey, which is not frequent or often, but when you need new filters or what have you, he's got them. Get the new primer bulb. It's made my life easier when changing my filters. I will never again take a rubber washer and stick it to a faucet and turn the faucet on and hold it there and get squirted in the eye. Uh, I wish they would have come out with that black primer bulb a long time ago, but it works great. I would de definitely recommend you add that to your, your preps uh, with an extra set of filters for your Berkey so they're always there when you need them. And Jeff has a lot of other great stuff for your preps at his website, directive21.com. And if you're in the market for a Berkey, and unless you own one, you should be, don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could have dealt with the man himself, Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. Next up today, um, I have a great announcement. We are now open for uh, reservations and deposits for the Perma Ethos. Um, Summer Festival, we're going to be planting swales. We're going to be doing so much, so much. I mean, just go to the blog and look it up. You're going to be feasting on Permaethos pork and, and, and Permaethos chicken and Permaethos duck and rabbit. Uh, if you're there with us, we're going to take you all around the farm. We're going to teach you about plant propagation. We're going to plant um, swales. We're going to put in swales. we got so much going on. It is going to be probably the best workshop we've ever done, ever, including the ones I've done here. And uh, I know not all of you can always get down to Texas to come to a TSP workshop at my farmstead. So many of you that are in the northeastern United States, this may be easier to get to. But I would say come to this no matter where you're at if you can. This is going to be a really special, amazing workshop. And it's going to be a great time to see the farm with things really booming. We just put in 3,500 trees. 3,500 trees. We've got a pond that's been stocked with fish last last year. It hasn't been fished since. Uh, we've got a lot of great stuff to see. Come on out, and uh, there'll be some special unannounced bonuses. I'll be dripping it over the next few weeks about other things that are going to be going on up there. I just firmed up one today that's going to be really cool and give you yet another skill that you can leave with and go home and uh, and use for your own homesteading permaculture prepping stuff. But I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. But get on out today to the survivalpodcast.com. You'll see the post in today's show notes for episode 1564. And you'll see the standalone post if you want to uh, right below today's episode. Uh, next up, let's take a look at the TSP Wiki today for the year 1564. I have, surprise, the battle for absolute power. And I have rats and the king rodent of Christmas. And I have, oh baby, a lot of famous people are born Man, I like the other two, but I got to read the famous people because of the people born this year. I, I just can't skip this. Uh, born in 1564 are the following individuals. Galileo Galilei, born in Pisa. Using a telescope, his observations of Jupiter will convince him the Earth orbits around the sun. He will come under scrutiny of the church, but he will avoid the worst charges with a lot of CYA memos. William Shakespeare. 
Born in Stratford-upon-Avon, he will become one of the greatest poets and playwrights in history. Some people believe he didn't write all of those plays, but that is a fringe hypothesis. Christopher Marlowe, born in Canterbury, he will greatly influence Shakespeare and become one of the great playwrights of the Elizabethan age. He will also become a spy and die under mysterious circumstances, or perhaps he faked his own death. Paulo Miki, born in Japan, he will become a Jesuit and crucified in Nagasaki. He will deliver a sermon from the cross for giving his persecutors. The Pope will saint him in 1862, along with several others crucified that day. My take by Alex Shrug, Galileo will also conduct experiments in gravity using cannonballs rolled down a ramp. My son recently built a metal forge similar to the one discussed on the TSP forums. He cast a hand-sized cannonball, ground and polished it to a mirror finish. I suggested that he reproduce Galileo's experiments, and his eyes lit up. He is a geek like his father. Galileo showed that formulas used to calculate the path of cannonball suffered from too much academic theory and not enough experimentation. Air friction errors must be taken into account when calculating where a cannonball will land. That's called military R&D, and that means money. That was probably why Galileo did experiments. A man has to eat. So there you go. Um, I'll tell you, I don't have a huge take on this, except I will say that you know, one of my many ways that I am what I call a sophisticated redneck is I, I really do love the work of William Shakespeare. And as a former airborne soldier, I'd like to share one of my favorite um, pieces of Shakespeare from Julius Caesar with you. That is, uh, pieces of it are on the walls of the airborne barracks at Fort Benning everywhere you look. Cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but once. Of all the wonders that I have yet heard, it seems to me most strange that men should fear seeing that death as a necessary end will come when it will come. Um, I think that's, in many instances, a good way to look at life. Like You can't live your life based on fear. I think if you actually look at the play itself, uh, Caesar's making a pretty grievous error when he makes that statement, and I, I, my take on that, the way I got to a take from this, is that I think it's important when we look at quotes from history and we, we, we say, I identify with this quote, we always also put a context with it to not only how it applied at the time, but how it applies to us now, and that these quotes and these, these, these inspirational thoughts and these ways by which we justify our choices in life need to be guides, not scriptures. Um, I, I do look out at life not fearing death, as I know I'm a mortal being. I'm going to die someday. So are you. It's one of the few things that we can all be sure that we will all experience is death. Um, unless some sort of science fiction thing ever creates a, a way to, to, to prevent that from happening. And I don't think it's possible that everybody would have that even if it did. We can be sure that we will all die and experience whatever comes with death. And to live a life based on fearing death is a strange thing since it is inevitable. However, that doesn't mean that we don't prepare. That doesn't mean we do what we can, you know, don't do what we can to avoid death. But it does mean that we don't let the the fear of death or anything prevent us from getting that which needs to be done done. That's my take by Jack Spierko. 
Last but not least, before we take your calls, consider joining the Members Brigade. If you're not a, yet a member of my Members Support Brigade, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. You'll get a lot of great stuff, like a couple hundred dollars worth of free ebooks on day one, discounts to over 50 vendors that will uh, save you more money than you'll spend, and you'll help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, along with first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all qualify for a discount. Email me, TSPC, service discount in the subject line before you join, and I will get you the discount code to save even more money on an already great membership. With that, let's take your first call of the day. Hey, Jack. I would greatly appreciate it if you shared your thoughts on the avian flu outbreak in the northern Midwest. I read on Reuters that Minnesota has declared an emergency because of a high pathogenic outbreak and is considering using the National Guard to handle this. I also read a quote from an owner that said the USDA owns his chickens now and there's nothing he can do. Now, I'm not worried about martial law, but I am concerned for my chickens. Do you think it's a good idea not to advertise that you have a flock to just anyone? My chickens free range and are visible from the road, and now I find myself feeling exposed without a privacy hedge. On the other hand, it's kind of hard to sell eggs without people knowing you have chickens. I would really like to know what you would do if there was an outbreak in your area and your birds showed no signs of infection or unexpected death. Would you hide them? I mean, what would you do if you did have some unexpected deaths? I just don't like the idea of the man coming in and killing all my birds and me being left with no recourse. I also read that they think this is spread by wild bird migrations, so I don't think it's going away. It seems like another case where the government's stamping out fires in their own piles of kindling. Thank you for your show and for really answering every email like you say you do. Take care. Joe. Okay, I think the first thing we need to do is understand um, why the avian flu is such a problem for the chickens that have been infected by avian flu in Minnesota and what chickens are being culled out and exterminated and gotten rid of. And again, versions of this question came from an Uh, four different callers today, and that's just of the calls I screened. So if you called with some version of this, it's not that this was a better version. I just got there first, and it was good enough. Okay, so if you look at what's being done, and the, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands and thousands of chickens that they're just going to destroy and get rid of and incinerate or burn up or do whatever they have to do to get rid of, it sounds like a lot, but it's really not a big footprint. And they're going to use the National Guard. Well, you know, they, they, they may use the National Guard uh, to transport uh, a significant large number of chickens in some sort of way where it's secure and not likely to spread. And I, it doesn't bother me. And I, They're not going to send the National Guard around looking for people's chickens. That's not, that's not what this means. And so when you, when you start looking at this, and it sounds like a lot of chickens, what you have to understand is it, it's a relatively small footprint. Because it's thousands upon thousands of chickens shoved into closed door confinement operations. These are chickens that are either, you know, living as, as egg factories for one cycle and being killed, or there's, and more of them are chickens that are living for 38 miserable days, and the very best day of their life is the day they die anyway. Um, these are the, the meat chickens that Tyson and Purdue, et cetera, are, are producing. And, If you think about those confinement operations, if one chicken gets the flu in there, everybody's getting the flu. Everybody's getting the flu. 
the people that are concerned about getting this flu are the ones under high exposure that are working in the chicken factories, the, 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 these, these chicken houses of horror. These are the causes of this. And when they say something like, we think it came from wild birds, uh, maybe, I don't know. It, it, it had to get here, so there had to be some initial vector. But it's not like it's wild birds infecting these, these birds every day. It's, it, it's similar to this. If you put a bunch of sick people and a bunch of not sick people into a confined building, it won't be long before everybody in the building's sick. But if you have a few sick people walking around, you're going to have a much lower transmission rate. So that's what we all have to keep in mind, that you could even have a bird get bird flu and die on your property. It doesn't mean the rest of your birds are going to get bird flu and die. But if they're all in a confinement setting, they're probably all going to get bird flu and die and spread it to other birds and possibly to humans. Um, when we look at this particular uh, clave of flu, does not appear to have much going for it in the way of human-to-human transmission. Um, almost every person that they've ever found that's actually contracted this illness has been someone that's in there breathing basically chicken feces constantly. Um, a little, you know, more on the numbers, uh, you know, I, I found an article confirming the, the National Guard stuff, but just to, like, so that you understand that the big number not necessarily means big area, uh, one of these individuals who said that he's basically at the mercy of the USDA now because they're their birds has a flock of 275,000 hens uh, for laying on in one farm. So... Again, this isn't like the backyard chicken guy is the one with the problem here or the one causing the problem here. And you, 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 if you use any common sense, it doesn't even make sense to worry about the backyard chicken because if the backyard chicken gets the, 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 the flu, it dies. You, you have birds flying all over the place that they're saying are the actual source of this. So, What we have to look at is the fact that you don't have people with backyard birds dropping over dead left and right, and yet you have a big problem with this inside the the commercial chicken factories because of the way that they're run. And maybe we shouldn't run them that way, I'm just saying. So, now, is it possible that a flock owner, such as myself, with about 100 ducks, could end up with an H... You know, an H5N2 avian flu among my flock. Yeah, it is. And the right thing to do would be to get rid of the birds. It, this is the only thing you can do. Now, I do want to point something out. Um, the USDA came in to this farm and purchased this guy's, this guy's birds. So they basically they bought him. They gave him compensation. They didn't just seize his chickens. You're not going to see the day when the USDA has the time to go around and start seizing everybody's chickens. I do worry about big food using this eventually to try to come up with more regulations to put the smack down on small poultry producers. But just like I said in today's history segment, I can't sit around worrying that maybe someday this will happen so it's going to get in my way of doing what I'm going to do. If you're going to be a person that sells eggs and, and, and does your own chickens on site processing and stu stuff to the public, you can't sell and not tell. It doesn't work that way. If you want to sell, you have to tell. So I'm not going to hide, and I don't think you should either. And as far as being worried, I think you have to be worried about it like this. If your flock gets this disease, they're probably mostly going to end up dead anyway. 
Well, tomorrow morning, a fox could get into your property, go rogue somehow, get into your hen house and kill everybody. Um, you, you, you live up in the Midwest. We have tornadic weather from Texas to the Midwest right now. Uh, all week long, we've had it, and we're not out of the woods yet. Still today, we have more of it. And a tornado could hit your chicken house and kill all your chickens. Uh, a blizzard could collapse it someday and kill all your chickens. I mean, it, it, livestock is, is something you might have losses on. We're going to talk about that more at a later call. So what, what I think you should do is not sit around worried about this. Maintain good sanitary practices, good airflow for your birds. Keep them outside as much as possible, confined as little as possible, and go on with life and not over-worry about this kind of thing. And that's the best advice I can give you. And don't anybody out there worry that you're going to get this this uh, this this bird flu. This particular clave, this H5N2, has been around for decades. This is an ongoing problem in the poultry world. Everywhere you stack this many birds together, sooner or later they get this thing and they die. I'm just saying. And and mostly you see very little incidence of this occurring um, with with birds in the wild. Or with birds in, you know, common sense operations that let the birds get outside. The the attempt to keep birds safe by putting them into a building together with each other is is is, is moronic in of itself, and it's it's probably a bigger part of the problem. You have to ask yourself: if This has been with us for decades. Why are there still flocks of billions of, of of geese and ducks and and what have you flying around all over the planet? Why aren't they all dead? Well, some develop resistance to it. But mostly it's because if you think about out in the open, how much transmission is there going to be bird to bird? There's going to be some, but it's not going to be to the level of when you can find it into a tube, a climate-controlled tube. That's where these chickens are living in their own feces. That's the problem. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. It's Jesse in San Diego again. Uh, calling with more of a quick reinforcing a couple of your lessons than a question. Uh, my mom had a stroke last week, and first lesson learned was make sure your paperwork's in order. She had nothing prepared, and it took me four days to get her bank statement and to make sure her bills were paid. Second of all, if you need to go to the hospital, go to the hospital. Uh, she delayed calling for help, and because of that, uh, the stroke did three times more damage than it would have if she would have just gone to the hospital. Anyway, she's doing better. She'll be fine. I just wanted to share that with y'all. Uh, it was a lesson I learned last week. Have a good one. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I'll, I'll relay a little short story here. Many years ago, I guess it's seven or eight years now that we've been uh, free of this. In fact, it's more than that because we're in our seventh year of TSP and it was at least a year before I started TSP that uh, my wife had surgery for a condition called trigeminal neuralgia. And she had dealt with it for years and been on different medications for it. And she was getting to a point that we knew that, that we might have to go ahead and do a surgery, which we eventually did. And the big fear was that when she would go into, and this is known as the most painful condition known to man, guys, to, to tell you what a warrior my wife is and what she's been through with, with certain things. Um, and when you're under an attack, if if you do get relief from it, sometimes something as simple as trying to speak triggers it again. It, it's terrifying. And it's like having your face electrocuted. It's like having somebody set up 
electrical probes into the side of your face and randomly change the frequency and intensity and the amount of pain that you're given. And it can last for 10 seconds, it can last for, for 10 minutes, it can last for 10 hours. Uh, you can go days without it, and it can come back. And the big fear was that she would end up having to go to the hospital or emergency room at a time I wasn't there. And I wrote up a whole book for her that she kept with her. It was all her medications. I'd already been through dealing with people in emergency rooms, all the questions they would ask and what the answers already were, so that anybody that was with her could use that book to explain what was going on. If you have any kind of chronic thing like that, that's the kind of thing you should have going because you could also be incapacitated and they don't know. Um, and don't rely on Obamacare's new computer records to fix anything because it's not going to. Um, also understand there are certain conditions that either pain or life-threatening people in ERs are not familiar with, and it's important to have as much educational material to rapidly educate them so they'll do their damn jobs, which is what I had to do twice with my wife. You know, with idiots, doctors thinking she's fishing for pain medications uh, while you're asking for anti-seizure meds. Uh, which is one of the ways to remove intractable, intractable pain. It's like, you know, you don't fish for seizure medications. And you don't decline pain medications when you're, when you're, you know, fishing for pain medications. Things like that are, are very important. On the go to the hospital thing, I think there's two sides to that. I think one, yeah, I completely agree. But two is the main reason people don't. Um, my wife also, last year, had this incredible pain in her neck and felt very, very ill and very, very sick. And we went to um, one of Care Now. Well, they referred us to go to an ER uh, because they were afraid she might have meningitis, which just totally seemed ridiculous and preposterous. And again, I think we had a doctor that thought she was fishing for hydrocodone or something like that when it's just the most ridiculous thing in the world. Um look at medical records, et cetera, and see this is not a person that's been on these medications or looking for them, but no. Um, so we ended up going, and we were there for about five hours. They ran a battery of tests to make sure that she didn't have uh, meningitis. They eventually, you know, they at least did not do a lumbar puncture and um, ruled it out. It turned out it was shingles presenting without a rash, uh, which I said it probably was when it started, but never mind that. And that wasn't diagnosed until the Monday, and this was on a Friday, uh, by her primary care physician when she could get in there, and they gave her some pain meds and stuff for that. Um, we get out of the ER. Uh, they'd run a scan this and try to figure that out and blah, 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 and, you know, look at the brain and go on and on and take your temperature. And By the way, she had no... Uh, she had a fever, a mild fever, but it, it, it went away. So one of the signs of meningitis is you get fever, it doesn't go away. Um, so there was some unnecessary things done. We do have insurance, not because the government says we have to, but because it's good to have insurance. But uh, being self-employed and having to pay for our own insurance, we have fairly high deductibles. The upshot of this is the bill for five hours at the ER with a doctor that looked at her three times for five minutes a pop, uh, a few bits of medication and a couple scans was uh, $9,000, of which we ended up paying about three of. So it can be very expensive to go to the ER and then find out I didn't need to go to the ER. I'd rather have a medical bill you didn't pay than be dead, though, or be messed up. 
So yes, go. But I think that's the other side of it. That's a big part of what holds, like, until I really know I need to be there, I don't want to go. There's a convenience thing, too. You're going to go sit there for hours while you might be dying in a chair and no one looks at you. Um, things like that are, are other reasons people don't want to go. Um, they'll figure out nothing's wrong with you, but they want to rule out other things and, and try to keep you from leaving. That's an, another one. I mean, there's a lot of practices going on. And it all centers around insurance and how much they can bill. Because here's the key, guys. As long as you have insurance, they'll bill the shit out of you, and they'll harass you for your piece of it, but they'll bill the shit out of you so they can get as much as they can from the insurance company. And, and we, we've seen doctors recently doing stuff in their practices that can only be explained by a desire to bill. You get tests, we want you to come in and talk about the test results. My wife's dealt with this lately, too. Well, what are they? Well, we can't tell you till you come in. And when you hold your breath and say, well, I'm not coming in, I don't have the money to come in, you lie to them, basically. And then they'll say, well, there's really not much, or there's this one little thing they want you to keep an eye on. They're trying to, to generate appointments just to generate billing. Um, this is a big problem in the medical industry. I don't see it going away anytime soon. So when it comes to things that are truly a risk to your health, you need to get to the ER or the hospital as quick as possible. And as far as paperwork, yeah, man, keep that stuff uh, somewhere where the people that care about you can find it and know where to find it because if you're incapacitated, you know, you need somebody to take care of paying your bills and all. And many times somebody's willing to do it, but can they? That's, that's the big thing. Uh, let's take another one. Hello, Jack. This is Aaron, your friendly neighbor from the north. I have a question regarding, um, what is customary regarding, uh, buying plants from online nurseries that don't survive do you ask for replacement plants or pl replacement plants at a reduced cost? Just looking for what's generally accepted in the in the field. And also um, another thing is a, a possible idea for plant insurance where you would uh, take some uh, cuttings and give them to a family member across town to be able to ensure that your investment is safe. Anyhow, thanks for everything you do. Take care. Bye. Um, to me, this is one of those great big giant it depends type things. So um, part of it is what you're doing with the plant. So if I order a ton of seedlings or something like that, and I go out and I stun them, like Mark Shepard style, and, and half of them die. I don't do anything because I bought them for the purpose of abuse, and I feel that what I've done is probably why. If I uh, buy plants and I feel that the reason the plant didn't survive might have been that I didn't give it enough support or it was in too harsh an environment and I tried to do something that isn't reasonable with it and it just didn't make it, I don't do anything about that either. If I buy a plant and it comes and it's in a dormant state and I scrape it and there's no green matter and it's dead on arrival, I definitely go back onto the vendor and say, hey, what the hell's the deal? Um, if I get plants that I feel are inferior quality based on what I expect from that vendor, because I expect different levels of quality from different vendors. I really do. I know some vendors are just not of the quality, and I've chosen them because they have something or they're cheap, and I'm willing to you know accept a little bit less quality and think see if I can kind of revive the plant. But I'll go back and say, hey, this is not cool. What are you guys going to do about it? There, there's a couple different things that can be done. First of all, usually any any catalog company, any online 
nursery uh, of any size is going to have a, 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 a policy for this. And you read that in advance and see what it is. Most of the time, they're happy to replace any losses. It's part of being in the nursery business. The problem comes when you buy, uh, let's say, uh, I just bought two smokehouse apples from uh, Stark Brothers. Good quality. They look great. I put them in the ground. They had them in stock. I needed some more cider apples. It's an old cider variety from Virginia. Uh, they had them. I wanted them. I bought them. I also bought two yellow Newton Pippins. They came in. They look pretty good. They're in the ground now. Planted them all yesterday. Um, it's a hot sector right now, and let's say another week goes by, and one of them fails to butt out and is dead, and I want one replaced. Stark would probably replace it like that if they have it. So then you're in the thing, do you want a refund? Do you want a replacement of equal value? Do you want to wait to get one when we have them available again? That type of thing. The other thing is shipping plants. So there's a window to ship plants, bare root in a dormant state. And that's how most people want to ship. Or just barely budding, just barely leafing out, that type of thing. Or small plants in pots, yes, but no one wants to ship a two-and-a-half-year-old grafted uh, apple tree in a pot. Because the shipping costs more than the tree for the weight and everything else. So you can get to a point where the, the, the vendor can't replace the plant until next year or at least fall because they can't ship. Or you can get to a point where in many instances is the case, they've sold out on that variety. So then you have to work with them. But if you have losses that you feel are due to the quality of the plant delivered, you should always contact whoever you bought them from and say, what can we do about this? And sometimes they'll make suggestions as to what they can do. But you do have to understand the reality of buying in this model is you can't just take it back and get another one. You might get a refund. You might get store credit. You might get you know uh, a substitute. But think about it like this. If you go to Lowe's or Home Depot, they have one-year replacement guarantees on their plants. Your tree can die on day 360, and they'll replace it for you. Okay, But let's say I go to Home Depot today, or Lowe's today, and I'm going to say Lowe's does this. I think Home Depot does. I'm sure Lowe's does, because I talked to a lady recently at Lowe's about this. Let's say I go down there today, and I buy a Whitley crab apple, and I bring it home, and I stick it in the ground. Uh, a month from now, I go back to Lowe's and say, here's my dead tree. It died. Um, and they don't care what you did to it. Basically, if you leave it out in the sun and it dies, they, they don't even ask. They just... That's their policy. Because so few people bring them back. And I'll get to why on that in a second, too. Um, so you bring that back. And they say, sure, um, you can have anything of equal value. You can have a refund or you can have store credit because we don't have any more of those. Because they only have them for a window. And they probably have a bigger window with a potted tree than a lot of the people that ship to. So that's your big iffy thing there. This is why I recommend you order trees for planting either in the fall or as early in the spring as possible. So if there are any problems, there's some window left to uh, to replace those. Now, there's some other things. So recently I ordered some stuff from a company that sends out catalogs to anybody on a list. And if you've bought anything from just about anybody, you're probably on the list. Anyway, this company is called Exciting Gardens, and uh, they do business under several other website URLs and several other catalog names. The underlying owner is Richard Owen Nursery. And I bought three different things from this company. I bought some Nanking Cherries, uh, some Rose of Sharon, um, and I, I also bought some Hummingbird Trumpet Vines. They were cheap, like stupid cheap. I think that 
the total order, and it was quite a few. It was like 24 rows of Sharon's, uh, 12 Nanking cherries, uh, and like I think 12 of the hummingbird vines, maybe more, was under 50 bucks, including shipping. So I consider it $50, mostly thrown away. The rows of Sharon's are about, I'd say, 9 out of 10 have, have butted out, and they seem to be fine. Uh, the Nanking cherries, I would say one in six, one in seven, seem to even be alive. Um, several were pretty much DOA. Like, I, I would check for green and prune them down and check for green and prune them down and check for green and, like, end up with a little bitty stick with a little bit of green at the bottom. And is there any buds? I don't know. And uh, most of them are sitting in the ground right now with, with they're just dead sticks. Uh, worse, they use that string-style packing tape to individually tape labels onto them tightly where it was almost impossible to cut the labels off without cutting into the trees, and there was no way to peel this tape off. You know what I'm talking about? The, sh the, the packing tape that has the strings in it that's very, very tough, and they taped them on individually, like wrapped around multiple times. Like anybody with a brain doesn't do this, Uh, and the hummingbird vines are dead. Like, you can just take snap, 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 snap. So, what's my recourse with these people? Their policy is they'll replace it. You know what? I don't want any replacements. I don't want to do business with this company anymore. So anytime now that I get a catalog in the mail, um, I will go see who is actually behind it, because sometimes catalogs aren't the people that they look like they are. They have these different brands they create, and I understand that, and there's, some of them are good. Michigan Bulb, uh, Gurney's, both have some other places they operate under different names, under, and they both do pretty good. This company, um, this, uh, this Richard Owen Nursery, not going to do business with them again. I'm not saying everything you're going to buy from, from them is crap, but I'm saying the packaging, the handling, and the quality, not worth my time. When I see stuff this cheap... I buy a little bit from a company, give them a chance to ruin my business. Over 50 bucks, I'm not going to make a big deal out of this. I buy a lot of plants every year. If this was all the plants I could afford, I'd probably get on the phone and make these guys give me a refund. Uh, to me, I don't know, 50 bucks worth of plants that came to me like crap. I, I, I don't think that what I just told you about them is going to help them very much. And I consider us even now. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. Kern Lundy here with a question about raising ducks. We've lost 12 of 25 ducklings over the seven weeks since we got them. How can we prevent additional losses? Background. We got our first nine ducks from incubated eggs you gave us during last November's workshop. They are doing great and are a couple of weeks away from hopefully laying their first eggs. We then got a batch of 25 Golden 300 hybrids from the same source as your latest group, and they are now about seven weeks old. We are now down to 13 ducklings. We understood going into this that losing livestock is a reality, but we want to at least learn something so we don't repeat any dumb mistakes. We got our ducklings about a month after you. We're in the same general area, same general weather, using the same feed, also providing grit. However, since we've lost so many, I can't help but think there's some factor we're not considering. We had our local vet send our latest loss to a lab for a necropsy, and he told us that it had rickets and that the leg bones and bill were softer than they should be. He recommended that we increase their protein by putting them on turkey starter, which has 26% protein versus 20% protein, for a couple weeks, and also increase their phosphorus by adding cod liver oil to the water and also expose them to more sun to increase their vitamin D. Can you think of anything else I should consider? 
Thanks for all you've inspired us to do to take charge of more of our lives. Well, your vet's suggestions may or may not help. I don't know that they'll hurt anything. Um, going to a, 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 the protein that high, I, I worry a little bit about the growth rate being a little too accelerated. But with uh, most of your breeds of ducks, it's not really as big a concern as is like with chickens. You basically can grow them to death if you if you hype them up on too much pr uh, protein. So I don't know. I fed. I feed my ducklings uh, chick starter for a couple weeks, and then they go on the same flock ration that everybody else is on. And my baby ducklings that live with their mothers that are being brooded, they're on the same thing the mothers are on because there's no way to, to prevent that. So um, I, I don't know that the food is that big of an issue. Sunshine may be. Um, let me tell you that we've lost some ducklings, and in every instance I believe the primary cause has been a duckling gets too wet, It does. It's not ready to preen well yet. It's in a brooder. It ends up huddled up with the other ducks. The other ducks end, uh, uh, end up huddled against it. It's a little bit smaller. It ends up literally being crushed to death, or it ends up out of the fray. It's too wet. It doesn't get dry. It doesn't get under the brooding lamp, and it dies of cold. But those are the two things I think mainly you have losses of ducklings uh, under. So... My approach to this has been, number one, get them the hell outside as quickly as you possibly can, period, the end. Stop paying attention to the backyard chicken forums and stuff like this with these people, these teacup birds. Uh, they have diapers on them running around their house and crap. It is a bird. It does not live in homes. It does not live in a box. It lives outside. So get them out into some sort of a chicken tractor type arrangement as quickly as possible. Try to time your ducklings if you can. Now, like this year, I had to brood a little bit longer than I was comfortable with because it was winter. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're in that situation, you just, you, you, you have to provide more protection from the cold when you don't have a mother brooding her baby. So, um, in that instance, we had to do a little bit more. Uh, but I, I want them out. I want them on the grass. I want them running around. I want them outside with fresh air. I want them able to breathe well. I don't want them in a confined space. I want airflow. I want them to be able to get warm when they want to. I want them to be able to cool off when they want to. And the next thing I want to do is I want to get them out of a tractor as soon as I can. I don't want them in a tractor for any longer than I have to. I want to give them as much space as I can, as fast as I can, without compromising their safety. So I think that goes a long way. We have never lost a duckling once we got them permanently out of the brooder ever that we know of. Maybe one got taken by a predator, we miscounted, didn't know they were gone, something like that. But we never like had the ducklings out of the brooder, outside, and then found a dead duck. We found not anywhere near as many as you guys did, but quite a few in the brooder. Uh, our latest batch, we had them in the brooder, we had them in with the turkey poults, and we lost one of the uh, the extra ducks that Dar Dorothy picked up to go along with Barbie, the adopted duck. It was the, one of the smallest ones, and I'm pretty sure what happened is exactly what I said. It got wet, it tried to get warm, it got in the huddle, and it had all the other birds against it, and it was up against the corner, and because of that, it got too much body weight on it, and it, it basically suffocated under the weight of its sisters and brothers. And That doesn't happen if you're not in a brooder in a place where you have a corner where the bird can get up against. Even in most tractors, the birds can move more. They have more space. They get less confined. They get less pressed against an area. So those are my big things. The next thing is I think that we worry way too much about ducks being cold 
and way too little about them being wet and cold. Um, if you get a duckling when it's still in the fuzzy stage and it gets really, really wet, it can, it can be in a bad way if it doesn't preen itself very, very well and gets dried off before it lays down. And if it lays down, it will, it will start shivering dramatically fast in temperatures you wouldn't think of as cold. Where if it was cold but dry, and it was like, you're cold, the duckling doesn't give a crap. He's like, oh, you're cold, huh? Dude, whatever, man, I'm cool. I'm fine. Right? But get him wet, and temperatures you find comfortable, he finds cold. Okay? This is why I think it's very important to develop a watering solution like the one I had with the drain beneath it or something to that effect. I saw somebody else recently for their brooder, what they did is they took a Tupperware um, container, They put like a grill, like like the, the thing you buy to go on the bottom of your grill that fit inside it, put a couple blocks underneath it to let it drain down, and set their water in there and put a hole that the ducks have to go inside the Tupperware thing through the hole. They can water in there, and then they come back out. And there's not only does it drop down like the paint pan solution I made, but it, the whole thing's contained. Whatever you can do to keep them dry will reduce your mortality. Keep them dry. Keep them warm. Don't overcrowd them in a brooder and get them onto grass as quickly as possible. That's, and I could be, like, I don't know exactly what your setup is and, and all. I'm based on what you told me. Um, clearly you're not doing everything wrong because you had way too many birds uh, that you hatched survive, like all of them, right? You didn't get all of them to hatch, but the ones that hatched, they, they made it through. But I did kind of pay attention to what you guys were doing, and you kept them inside way, way, way longer than I do. Um, I have birds at a minimum outside at 10 to 14 days. And I will have them out during the day at like four to five days of age. And that's observational as well. I watch mom take the baby that hatched 48 hours ago and walk her all around out in front of the little duck house and take her to water and watch them eat and then take them back in the duck house. And I watch that little bitty duck about the size of a mouse hop four inches up to get back in the duck house and do just fine. And when they're four or five days old, I watch them go through the two-inch fencing mom can't get through, run around, and then come back through the fencing to mom. They're very self-sufficient. We need to realize that. And even though it's a little bit of work during that maybe that week in the middle, like five to seven days, you start putting them outside, and then at night you bring them in the brooder, and then you put them back out. Then they're only in the brooder for eight, ten hours overnight. That's less time in there. That's less time combined space. That's less time to have respiratory problems. That's less time to get crushed. That's less time to be wet and not be able to get dry. So that's my approach, and I'm, I'm still refining it, but... We've done much better that way, and we've had less times where we didn't lose a bird, but we're like, oh, this thing's cold and wet, and we had to like hold on to it, put it in a towel, keep it warm, get them out of the brooder, get them on the grass, keep them dry, keep them warm. Uh, I got another duck question, and a little duck tidbit that I'll put in at the end of the next duck question uh, that I've uh, I've stumbled on today, and then we'll go on to something for Stephen Harris. Hi, this is my name is Chris from North Carolina, and my question is on a half acre of good land that has plenty of grass, can you raise at least 10 ducks on it? Thank you. Uh, well, it's a short, simple question with a pretty simple answer of yes, you can. There's, there's no doubt it's enough land uh, to raise a flock of, let's say, 10 ducks. Uh, I'd like to say a little bit more about how I figure out land carrying capacity with something like a duck. I do it the same way you do with a cow. Um, 
people will hear like, okay, this piece of land with rotational grazing uh, can handle 20 animal units of cattle. And they say, okay, well, that means 20 cattle. Well, maybe. Uh, but what you're really looking at is 1,000 pounds to a grazing unit. So a 1,000 pound animal. So if you have uh, steers uh, that you're raising right now that are 500 pounds, for that you know, animal to count as a grazing unit, you need two of them while it's that size. So when I look at land, I generally try to run one grazing unit to the acre and then build the rotation around that. There's never a hard, fast rule. You always have to look at the land. You always have to use a little bit of intuition. You always have to say, this needs to be grazed and that doesn't right now, or this needs to be grazed a little longer than normal, or this needs to be grazed a little shorter than normal. And I think the bigger the land, the more paddocks, and the larger the animals, and the less picky they are about what they eat, the easier it gets to be where you just kind of just have a schedule and follow it. And with ducks, they kind of run over here and run over there and eat a little bit of this and eat a little bit of that, and then they eat grasshoppers, and then they don't graze, and then they do graze, and then they eat your vegetables, and then they don't eat your vegetables, right? So with that, it's a little bit more intuition, but I still manage them that way. So I run about a 100 ducks. My ducks average about 5 pounds a bird. That means that all 100 ducks on the, on the webbed foot weigh about 500 pounds. That's a quarter of a grazing unit which means I'm at a half of a grazing unit to an acre, which is well within the land's capacity, and I certainly could run one grazing unit on three acres. I'd need a lot more paddocks if it was truly a one cow than three. With ducks, again, it's a little bit different, but that's how I look at it. So I have three one-acre paddocks. I have 100 ducks. They go over here for two weeks. They go over here for two weeks. They go over here for two weeks, and then they go back to where they were. They're off every acre for at least four weeks in between, and everything's good, and everything's well, and everything's working really, really good now. Way better than it ever did before when they had more of just a free-range opportunity. So the one thing I would say is it, it, it is highly likely if you can find you ten ducks, eight ducks, six ducks, somewhere in that number, even a dozen ducks on a half acre, and let them just go ducky, free range on a half an acre, you, you probably won't have any problems. They probably won't overgraze any specific area. A uh, half acre's not that big. I mean, they can see end to end and they know their boundary. They're, they're going to be cool there. It, it, it would probably be beneficial to split it at least in half and run them two weeks here, two weeks there, two weeks here, two weeks there. And if you have like a, a nighttime home that they go to bed in, which is a great idea for ducks and really a good way not only to help keep them safe, but to make your management of everything easy. If you can centrally locate that so that you can basically let them out of one side or the other and they have half and half, then you'd be a long way toward getting things done. It would be even better to break it up into thirds if you can. And move them a week here, a week here, a week here. I'd probably go one week rotation, see how it works, and maybe extend the rotations. I almost think though, I don't know if that really would be, because then you're, you know, you're a third of a half, right? If you split a half in half, you've got two quarters. Quarter acre, ten birds, 
they still got a lot of room. They got a lot of stuff to do. They got a lot of stuff to keep them interested. They got a lot of stuff to play around with. And I think maybe just cutting that in half would be your best bet. Again, I'm going to say, I don't think you have to. I just think your results will be better if you do. And I think you'll learn from it. Now, the good news is you can fence it with like two and a half foot cheap fencing. And to, and to cut that in half isn't hard and th throw some poles in the ground and instead of like trying to do it super, you know, super duper fencing with come alongs and all, you can put them on with freaking zip ties like I did and make yourself a couple gates for your own convenience and, and go on with life. And I would say with a small backyard like that and all, you could even put in some swing gates that are, that are spring, uh, loaded. Where when you walk, you can just walk right through and your weight just pushes them out of the way and you can go through. And a duck ain't going to figure out how to do that. Uh, so I would consider the fencing, but don't consider it necessary. I would give them a, a nighttime home to go back to a base of operations, put them in there for a day, force them back in there for a day or two, and they will, they will take that as their home and they will always go back there at night and The most thing you'll have to do at the at, at nighttime when you go to put them to bed is tell them to get in there, or maybe you have one or two renegades. You get a stick and just kind of guide them into their house, and everybody else will be in there. I another little management thing. I do not confine my ducks to a house. They have a confinement area at night with a house or with some type of housing they can go to. And ducks really can do well with like lean-to housing or little like. Uh, Like, like a gable roof thing, like a, like two sides open triangle that they can go in to get out of the elements and stuff. They don't really need a poultry house, but if you already have the infrastructure, it's really a good, it's really a great thing. Cause they'll lay in there, put boxes in for them to lay in on the floor, put straw in there. And if they go broody, they've got a place. And if they get stormy, they got a place and they'll, they'll appreciate it, but they'll spend most of their time out in the little yard you create for them. Another little management tip that I've picked up is straw seems like a good idea until it rains, and then it rains, and then it rains, and then it rains, and then it rains, and you keep adding straw, and it keeps getting spongier and stinkier and grosser and grosser. Wood chips for your management area, uh, at least four inches deep, and then get a stockpile of wood chips you can keep, and when you get areas that really get poopy or whatever, throw down you know a half inch in that area, and I think your life will be very, very stink-free and very, very happy if you do that with your ducks. Um, water inside the confinement area in some sort of poop-free fashion. No pools, no bathing inside the confinement area. Can keep that outside and move it around every day. Now, the little thing I picked up this week, we moved the ducks over to the, the west pasture. Uh, we had the chickens managing the, the horse poop. The, the horses are back, so now we're getting new horse poop. Um, I told the neighbors the horse poop now can't be in a pile. It has to be spread out in a single layer because the ducks will not rip it apart the way the chickens did. I had some leftover piles from when the chickens left that were mowed down but aren't really worked in. And the ducks kind of play around in there, but they weren't really going into it and doing what I really needed done. And I started thinking about the fact that every time I dump a kiddie pool for them or an area gets really muddy and puddled or whatever, the beaks go an inch in the ground and, dip, 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 and they start going back and forth, back and forth, mudding it all up and filter feeding and looking for anything they can find in there. So I took their pools and I put them right where the poop pile was, the horse poop pile, and the next day I dumped a great big flood into the where the poop pile is. And guess what? Num, 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 num. And these ducks are now literally mashing up and tilling the horse manure into the soil way better than the chickens ever did on their best day. 
way better. Because the chickens would go at it and go at it and go at it till they got bored of it, and there wasn't much there for them anymore. And then whatever state it was in, it got left that way. They, they, they shredded it up, they spread it out, but they never really got it into the soil. These ducks are actually incorporating it and leaving all these little pock holes where all of this stuff on the next deluge just kind of goes in and fills in, and you end up with a beautifully prepared piece of ground. So it's like duck poop tractoring without a tractor. Uh, and it's really simple. It's just wherever you dump the water. On a half acre, just know, wherever you dump water, they're going to do that, so move it every day. And I'd say for 10 ducks, one little Walmart kiddie pool, the, 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 the smaller size, is probably all that you'll need for them ever. Uh, with that, let's take a question for Stephen Harris, and I'll go ahead and play his answer right after it. Hi, Jack. I have an expert counsel question number for Stephen Harris. Question, Mr. Harris, what is your recommendation for a battery backup system for a home computer setup? Details. I've sent Jack a long email with a lot more detail that I'm going to cover here which I'm sure he'll send you, but the short version is that I'd like to get your recommendation for a battery backup system for my computer setup, which has a tower and two monitors that have an approximate maximum wattage draw of about 850 watts. I discovered recently, much to my displeasure, that the battery that my computer is currently attached to was not able to keep my system powered on during a recent power failure. So this is something I'd like to address and fix quickly. Additionally, what are your... What are your um, thoughts about the features, specs, capabilities, etc. that I need to be concerned with and think about when I'm making a selection, and what's just marketing plus that I can ignore? Thank you in advance for your time and response. Brad from Virginia. And an off-air comment for Jack. Um, I sent the email to you at 10.54 Eastern Standard Time on the 7th of April. Thanks, Jack. Brad from Virginia. This is Steve Harris with Expert Counsel calling in to answer your question. Yeah, Brad, I got just the thing here for you to power your 850-watt computer. What is it? Your father's lightsaber. This is the weapon of a Jedi Knight. Not as clumsy or random as a blaster. An elegant weapon for a more civilized age. Brad, really? 850 watts for your computer. I have a friend who has a comment on that. How could I have been so careless? 1.21 gigawatts! Tom, how am I going to generate that kind of power? It can't be done, can it? I need to remind everyone that battery banks are not for powering your refrigerator. Battery banks are not for powering your freezer. Battery banks are not for powering your coffee maker. Battery banks are not for powering your air conditioner or any other hydro device. And refrigerators can be 120 watts if it's an Energy Star refrigerator. You're talking about 850 watts for the computer. Now, where you can say, yes, yeah, Steve, but I want to have a battery bank with like eight golf cart batteries in it. And sure, eight golf cart batteries would power your desktop 850-watt computer for a significant number of hours. Let's say, you know, about 10-ish or thereabouts, it would power it. But 
a whole other thing comes into play here, and that's the economics of it, which are by far more important. If you got eight golf cart batteries, the second you set those things down, they're losing life. They're losing life every day. Whether they're, you know, sitting there fully charged or you're using them, they're losing life daily. And those batteries are going to be good for only about five years or thereabouts, depending. So eight golf cart batteries, they're about, you know, 110, $120 each. And that does not include the core charge, which can be up to another 20. So you're talking 900 to $1,000 in batteries. It's only going to last you, um, it's only going to last you five years or thereabouts. And then you got to spend the money again. Now what can you get for a thousand dollars? You can get yourself a really nice generator. And a really nice generator can last you thirty years, not five. Yeah, you know I mean a really nice one. One that would can actually power your entire house if you so des so desire and you have it properly installed by an electrician to backfeed into the entire house with a uh a cutout switch. Actually, it's called a transfer switch, and that's what I meant. But um, so it just doesn't make sense. Battery banks are for little things. Battery banks are for recharging your cell phone, for running your scanner, your radio, your small television. They're for recharging AA batteries and, and charging headlamps and USB devices and stuff like that. That's what battery banks are for. That's where their real advantage are. They are not a lightsaber of infinite power. And by the time you put together enough batteries to be of enough power, you're running into the cost of a generator. So what the smart thing to do is is take the amount of money that you have you're going to spend and buy a good generator and buy yourself a small battery bank that way you got the run silent run deep uh quiet method of using the battery bank for led lights and and your small tv and your radio and to keep some small fans going and to keep your overnight power going and when you want to use your computer you crank up the generator and you run the whole thing uh, off the generator for whatever period of time that you so desire. I can't think of what you'd be using your computer for in a blackout that you need to get to it and run 850 watts worth of stuff. Well, if you just want to get onto the Internet, something that makes by far more financial sense is to get yourself a 200 to $250 notebook laptop pc running either um google chrome or windows 8.1 or wait till windows 10 comes out and uh chances are your internet's going to be down anyways your power is down over a significant portion of the area the power supplies power to the cable company and the phone company as well as you and if it's a blackout of any size you're not going to have access to the internet now, Jack has told me several times he's had his power fail at his new house, and, and he just had to power his computer or his laptop, and he could get on the Internet because the Internet, the cable system, did not go down because it was such a localized power failure. So the other thing that works good if you get a $200 P, uh, notebook is to use your cell phone as a Wi-Fi hotspot. This is now included in most cell phone packages where a year or so ago it used to be cost extra money. 
So if you just want to get on the internet, I mean, $200 for a laptop and using your cell phone to get on through the data feature is by far cheaper than spending a thousand dollars on a battery and or a thousand dollars on a generator. So your cheapo route is to, excuse me. So as I was saying, your cheapo route if you just want a computer and be able to get on the internet is to run a laptop, especially when these new laptops, you can run those off your battery bank. No problem. Run the data through your phone and you're on the internet. If you're going to run your 850 watt computer and you want to do it for any length of time, like for longer than 30 minutes or longer than an hour, you're going to want to go with a generator. It's going to be a much better financial and much better prepping option for you. Now, if you do want to power your refrigerator or your freezer or, God forbid, your coffee maker, I understand some of you got to have your coffee and everything else like that, you do want to run a higher power device like this, and you need to run it off of your car with an inverter on your car and your car at idle out in your driveway. To learn how to do this step by step, please go to solar1234.com and take my little class I did with Jack on how to power your house from your car. So, anyways, I hope I answered your question. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel. You can get everything I've done with Jack at www.steven1234.com. Lots of true stories up there. And I'll talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Hey, Jack. This is Richard. I wanted to thank you for helping me uh, get past my overthinking phase of planning the little food forest at our property. Uh, background is I've called quite a few times about different questions, and basically uh, what I was finding out was that I was pretty much just overthinking it, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I'm instituting a policy this first year, as I'm observing, of just basically epic planet. And I'm just planning stuff, and I'm going to see how it turns out, and uh, throughout the years I'm just going to be adjusting the design and adjusting where things go as they, uh, as they find out where they work best. And I think that's a lot better than uh, uh, a whole season of inaction as I'm trying to figure it out. So I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Bye. It's funny. What I was thinking as he was saying this is about Nike, right? Just do it and just plan it. And then he had a little bit more emphatic way of putting that. But I, I agree. And I'll tell you what I've started doing with design on my own property. I don't worry about so much what tree. And I think that one of the things we tend to do with design uh, and there's a place where maybe this makes sense, and and I'll talk about that a little bit too. But where like I'm gonna have a you know an all red palm in this spot and a cajojo pear in this spot, and I'm gonna have uh, sure crop nectarine here, and then I'm gonna have a nanking bush cherry in the shrub zone, and a, you know all this, and we get down very sharp pencil stuff right away. And we get caught up with the sharp pencil when we should be working with the fat marker. right? So what I do now is I go, okay, how's the water work here? Are earthworks going in or sheet mulch or whatever or irrigation? What's that going to look like? So you design the mainframe and you find out that's like easy as shit to do. So now you got your mainframe designed. So now you look at it and you go, okay, where do my trees go here? And you say my trees go there, 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 and there. There's enough room for 20 trees in this system. 
And maybe you take uh, some little uh, landscaper flags, like marker flags, and you write a great big T on every one of them. You make T1, T2, T, all the way to like T30, if you have 30 trees, and stick the flags where the trees go. And then, sure, figure out, I want this tree, that tree, this tree, and that tree, and you'll find out I'm not going to get 30 trees at once. So you plant the trees that you want where you've made them in your little fine-point version of the design, if you do a fine-point version of the design. And then one day you're out and you go, hey, look at that. There's a, uh, there's a crab apple I'd like to have in my design. You bring it home, and where all those flags are sitting are any place a tree can go. And you go, you know what? It's going here. Boom. Stick it in. That's one of the ways I've simplified my design decisions. And I got very fine point with a lot of my design early on, and I had a lot of trees die, not show up, whatever. And I have these voids now, and now I'm doing just that. I get a tree, I find an open spot, and it goes. My life is easier. I'm happier. The only reason I ever even got fine point with the design is I knew people would ask for it. What's in there? Where does it go? You know, they want to see it, whatever. So here's what I decided. When it's all planted, or most of it's all planted, then we'll put it all in a design <laughs> that's more for someone who's not here to be able to understand it than it is for me to plan it. Um, I think there's a lot that goes in design that's very important. And again, so we say, okay, there's my 30 trees. Okay, I've hit 30 trees. I should probably have uh, some shrubs in here. So S1, S2, everywhere a shrub should go. You know, And then you get into herbaceous and ground covers and stuff, and you do what you can with that, really. Um, you know, you plant what'll work and you, you put it here and there. But if you, if you, if you stick with bushes and shrubs and vines and trees as your mainframe decisions and just decide something, this is an open space and something needs to go there. And what needs to go there based on everything else is a tree. And then you might make some decisions like, okay, there's a certain tree that's already here. I want something different to confuse the pests or, The tree that's here is really bushy, so maybe the tree that goes here needs to be more of a columnar shape, uh, less bushy, so they're not so entwined with each other. Uh, or the, uh, this is to the front, so a taller growing tree can go to the, the north end or whatever. You start making those decisions, but the more you can get in the ground, the more you'll see what does well and doesn't do well. And then all of a sudden, like all these ideas about I want this tree and that tree and this tree – Kind of go to the wayside. You start going, all this stuff lives. I want more of it. All this stuff dies. I don't want to spend any more money on it. So I have certain things this year that I'm looking at going, okay, this is your year. You're going to live and you're going to thrive or you're going to get ripped out of the ground and you're going to die and I'm going to get rid of you and I'm never going to buy you again. Cornelian cherries, I want them on the property so bad. They look like they're doing really well this year. They looked like hell last year. But if they don't look good at the end of this season – Uh, if anything, I'll leave the ones that are still alive in the ground and plant stuff around them. And if they make it, they make it. If they don't, they don't. And I'm not spending money on them anymore. And how do you know that? Well, you throw it in the ground and see if it lives. I mean, that's what it comes down to. You plant a whole bunch of stuff, just plant it instead of just do it. Uh, good call. Let's take another one. Hello, Jack. Uh, this is Scott in Missouri. I have a an annual garden bed uh, irrigation question. The background is I've got a drip tape system, a kit that I'm going to install here at the house. I've got a home garden that it'll run off of my faucet just fine. problem is I have a 700-square-foot garden I've put in out of some land we own. I don't live out there. don't have, you know, I don't have, uh, you know, water or electricity, but I do have water in the form of a five-acre lake. problem is... Um, You know, I've got this garden pushed right up against the lake, so the water's right there. I just want to know how best to get it uphill 
and let it kind of trickle back through my system. Originally, I was going to go and, and pump it manually every few days with a, uh, a serious water pump that I have up to a uh, 210-gallon tank and let that trickle out into a drip tape system. But it doesn't look like I'm going to get the PSI that I need. Currently, the uh, drip tape needs about 4 PSI to work, and we're just not going to be uphill far enough for that to, you know, be an option. So I wondered about some other ideas, uh, maybe even creating my own drip tape sort of with a PVC with really tiny holes drilled through it or something um, and, and letting, you know, the tank drain into that system back and forth. Uh, be curious to hear your ideas. Our springs are usually pretty wet here, so I don't have to worry about it too badly just yet, but um, I'm still kind of hemming and on about what to do. So uh, if you would, give me maybe your thoughts, and I look forward to hearing them. Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Okay, um, there's a couple things at play here. First, I really wanted to provide you with a resource. It was from a college or a university or an ag department or something like that, and I cannot find it now, and if I do, I'll, I'll later stick it into the show notes for you. But it was basically what you asked about, building drip irrigation from PVC pipe that sat above the ground using the UV-stabilized pipe that they call brown pipe, even though it's not brown, it's gray. Um, and you drill holes, and it gave the specs of how long to go, how much, how many, you know, what size hole to drill and all. And, of course, the advantage to that is if you do put holes in in a certain pattern and they're not quite flowing enough for you, then you can you know make them a little bit bigger. If they get clogged up, you can take a piece of wire and clean them out, what have you. It's pretty convenient, and everything's above ground, and you can see it, and it's easy to fix, and it's easy to move, and all that jazz. So that can be done. However, I don't know that you'll need to. Um, one thing we need to understand about, first of all, manufacturers. We'll say, well, you need X to be able to, uh, amount to be able to, you know, get this thing to work. It may not be the case. Uh, they want to be able to say, well, do you have 12 PSI of pressure? Because if you don't, it's your problem, not ours, right? So manufacturers always cover their ass with their specs. And they always overspec things in their specs. They overspec them when they're trying to sell them to you on the marketing side, uh, and basically say that it'll, you know, like, like when they tell you that, uh, up to 15 miles of transmission with this two-way radio and optimum, you know, uh, optimum conditions. Yeah, you're standing up on a mountain with a clear line of sight down to the person, and the, the ionic stratosphere isn't a perfect thing to give you a skip or whatever. And that's, you know, one thing. But on the other side, when it comes down to the technical specs, a lot of times. On the other side, they'll, with the user's manual, they'll, they'll err to the other way, so it may just work. Here's why I know this. Nicholas Bertner from Permaculture Classroom has a couple IBC totes in his backyard in Plano, Texas, and he has drip run through his whole backyard. That's not a very big system, but there's almost no elevation change at all, very, very little. And his drip irrigation works just fine off just the volumetric pressure from two... IBC totes, which I think are about 300 gallons a piece, so they're about 600 gallons there. So if you have enough volume, the volumetric pressure tends to make up for gravity feed pressure. So what you might do is upscale your tank and, you know, down a tractor supply for about 900 bucks. It'll look funny, but a standard pickup truck can take it home for you. They have a 1,500-gallon poly tank like the ones in my backyard. You set that up on a platform a couple feet up. You fill that thing up, and until it's at least halfway empty, 
It's got some pressure. Right now I have two of them plumbed together. They're only a foot high. Um, they are combined to be 3,000 gallons. And let me tell you something. I don't know what the PSI is, but when you open up the valve, it's impressive. It's more than 12. I promise you, it's whatever it is, it's more than 12 coming out the bottom. And anything down from there, it's only going to increase. So, you know, if you can find a tank, you know, buy a new tank like that, find a used one. Uh, Nick Ferguson, um, one of the partners at Permit Ethos, uh, is, you know, got a couple of like 2,500, 3,000 gallon ones he got for next to nothing. And as big as they are, their light is a feather when they're empty. A big, huge tower. Now, you set that up, and then you got something. Now, here's the thing. You don't want to just turn that on, right? And have your irrigation run constantly. So you are going to need to do something with at least like a couple of car batteries or something and maybe a, a small solar panel with uh, some 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 uh, solenoids to control what opens when and for how long. But that's not hard, and it, it won't take much work, and you, it'll be a pain in the ass. You'll do it once. It'll be good. I mean, that's the approach that I would take. And then you pump water into a tank like that and... I would, if you had a, like a 1,500-gallon tank, I would put like 400 gallons in it and see if it works. And then I would you know, drain it down to like 200 gallons, drain it right back in the pond and see if it works and figure out, well, when does it stop working? When does it stop working? When is, what is the, so then you know when you fill it, you have X number of, uh, of cycles that it can run, and then you know how long you can leave for without worrying about it. Right, that's, that's how I would handle this personally. Um, the other way would be to set up a pump with some sort of solar power uh, because you wouldn't have to run it very frequently and a solenoid-based system where you create some zones and just pump the water straight out of the lake there. Um, but there's a lot more draw uh, to do something like that than to be able to just throw a submersible pump into there and fill a tank. Um, it would take a long time the first time you did it, but topping it off wouldn't be that big a deal. And it could be something that you take a portal generator out there with you and do or, or what have you. Those are my ways I would get that done. Um, I just think 200 gallons may not do it for you. But you know what? The other way to do it is to keep it cheap. Plumb together four or five IBCs and fill them up and see what you know. Plumb one and see, what, see if it works first of all. One IBC, see if it works. If it doesn't, work at all, then maybe you go to a bigger tank, but plumb enough of those things together and you get enough volumetric pressure, you get surprising results. Um, and remember, the head pressure is coming from the top of the water on the volumetric side. So if the tank is four feet tall, even if the base is only two feet above the, the garden, you're actually at six feet until you drop a foot, then you're at five, four, three, two, one, etc. But I, I just about guarantee you, you put, you know, even like a 600-gallon poly tank up there uh, a couple feet uh, above grade, and then that's a couple feet or so above your, your garden, you're not going to have trouble running drip. Uh, if anybody knows the, I think it was a PDF, too, uh, that I'm talking about that has the, the pipe irrigation system, I'd like to provide that for everybody. Uh, if you can get that to me, I'd appreciate it. Uh, I might have put it in the MSB under public documents at some point, but I don't think I ever got around to doing that. Uh, but I just can't locate it for the life of me. I thought I had it in my uh, Delicious account, but I, I couldn't find it there either. 
Anyway, um, with that, let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack, this is Joe from Kansas, and I've got a question for you about uh, permaculture. Uh, I might be a little specific for the show, but um, on page 88 of Permaculture 1, they're talking about uh, predicting the gender of offspring of people that have gone back to the land. And uh, they talk about how um, they had uh, 53%, you know, males to females before these people went back to the land, and then their offspring was 63% males after the move, and uh, they predicted it. I haven't finished the book yet, but they kind of leave this hanging. What do you think about this? It's some pretty intriguing things there. Uh, your thoughts on this would be greatly appreciated. And thank you for the show. Take care. This question also came to me by email, and I, I responded uh, to the email with the following, and I copied Jeff Lawton on it. I said, I don't know, but this is typical of Mollison. He drops stuff like this over and over and over. You check it out. You spend countless hours doing so only to confirm it over and over and over. At some point, you give up and start trusting the old goat. I'm sure Jeff would agree. Jeff, I didn't. I just kind of copied him on this just as a courtesy, and he did actually respond to me. He And here's what Jeff says about this. Hi, Jack. I think this is related to the fact that our high organic matter systems tend to move pH lower over to be just on the acid side of neutral. And in acid environments, you get more male births. And in alkaline environments, you get more female births. Bill covers this in quite some detail in his autobiography. And there's some other stuff that's just to me. Um, first, I didn't know Bill Mollison had an autobiography. I haven't been able to check yet today, but I'm hoping it's not just like just available in Australia or something because I'd like to read it. Uh, so I'm going to try to get my hands on that. If I find out that it is on Amazon, I'll put it in today's show notes. I think that Jeff might be on to something uh, with this, and he's actually asked if we would both maybe do some research on it, and I'm going to do that. And if anybody else wants to take this one up, um, I think it would be worth doing. Here's why I think he might be right. There might be some hard wiring. If you have a population more weighted toward males, you end up with less offspring. If you have a population more weighted toward females, you end up with more offspring. And it may be that we, we end up with balancing that equation based on acidity and alkalinity because as you move toward a slightly acidic system, you end up in a system that is very, very stable uh, and therefore you have less need of higher population. If you move toward a system as you get into more alkalinity, you generally end up with less fertility. And with less fertility, you end up with a greater need to have more and more species so that some will survive. So I think that might be, that Jeff might be onto something there. But I will say this, in the world of permaculture and what seem to be outlandish, ridiculous claims by Bill Mollison, you're almost, like when he talks or lectures, you're almost beaten over the head with this like stuff where you're like, it can't all be true. And, and every time that I've challenged one, I've always come up with verification that it was true. And in some instances, like the difference in molecular density of the water between water that is created through oceanographic uh, effect uh, in, in terrain 
and rain that is created from the effect of transpiration from forests. And those two waters having different molecular densities, it was actually not only confirmed by science, but brought us this amazing discovery just a few years ago. Uh, but Bill was making this claim back in the 80s. Where he got it from, I don't even know. And that's just the kind of guy he is. And it's really kind of an amazing thing that one man has so much to offer and so freely did for, for so long and, and continues to do so. He's an older guy now. He's in, in you know upper age, failing health. And I don't know how much longer he's going to be with us. Um, and it'll be a sad day the day that he does pass on. I did have the good fortune to meet his grandson um, at, at Permaculture Voices and, and find out that many of the things that I – have been saying that I believe that Bill believed were then confirmed by him. Yeah, that's he said that's I like that. I'm spot on with that. Yeah, that was that was a pretty big deal for me to know that what I've been teaching and what I've been saying is in fact in line with what what Bill really means because sometimes it's hard to be sure because Bill writes in ways that a sentence is so profound that you need to use four sentences to explain his one. Even though you can understand, even if when you when you think you understand it, and you do, when someone says, well, what's it mean, and you explain it, you can't just make it one sentence yourself and use simpler words. You realize there are, there are like five pieces to that one sentence, and then when you read a paragraph or a page, so you read a, a page of Bill Mollison's like reading a chapter of, some, of another writer, in the same discipline. That's what makes the designer's manual and some of the other works that he did so amazing, but yet so difficult sometimes to just read through. Um, I really hope to uh, find that autobiography. Anybody that's heard anything about this claim that as you go more into a back-to-the-land movement, you end up with a higher frequency of male births. I, I'd like your thoughts on that as well. Maybe between all of us and me and Jeff, we can come up with a way to explain this claim made back in, I guess, 1978. Let's, uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. It's Sean from southern Ontario, Canada. I got a question regarding um, starting apples and eight, uh Oak trees from seed. I listened to your show a while back regarding uh, cold stratification. I put some apple seeds, some pear seeds, and some acorns in a bag of peat moss and uh, got it moist and let it uh, overwinter in my fridge. Um, put them in some pots. They, they uh, seeded out. I put them under some light, and um, they're about two to six inches uh, at the moment in some little pots in my windowsill. Um, I'm in zone 5, I believe, in Ontario here. And uh, my question is, what do I do with them next? I mean, I want to obviously plant a couple to have long term, but I, I've, I've got too many to, to keep in my small backyard. So um, is there a good way to, you know, plant them in the ground and be able to pick them up later to sell or transfer uh, to maybe a different property? Um, any thoughts would be great. I appreciate the show. Thanks a lot, Jack. So, yeah, it's not long before baby trees need to come out of baby pots and to go into bigger systems. You have a couple ways you could do this. You could get them into something along the lines of what they would call a five-gallon nursery pot. Uh, I would say at least a three-gallon. And a three-gallon is not three-gallons, and a five-gallon is not five. 
Uh, don't ask me why. It just works that way. Everybody knows it. But if you get a five-gallon nursery pot, uh, it, it's not really close to five gallons compared to, like, let's say, a five-gallon bucket from Home Depot. Uh, but something in that size, and you could pot them up and, and, and raise them for, you know, a season or two before they had to go somewhere. Uh, it's, that's labor-intensive. It's resource-intensive. It costs a lot of money. It requires an awful lot of fill, and it's not what I would do. Uh, what I would do is build something along the lines of about four foot by eight foot beds or larger if you want to, uh, filled with a, a very loose, friable, sandy mixture, maybe peat moss, sand, and perlite uh, type of arrangement where it's going to be very easy to remove them later. Uh, and I would build that maybe uh, with uh, the sides maybe with two two by eight, so you have at least 14 inches of depth there, maybe even a bit higher, maybe using two by 12s, uh, double stacked. Uh, and then I would fill that with this mixture. And I would put those seedlings into there and set up some kind of automated irrigation so I don't have to play with it all the time. And I would grow them out, you know, into fall or maybe even to, to early spring next year. Um, and, and they would be fine in there for a season. But then at that point, you got to figure out what, what you're doing with them. Um, they, that can't go on forever. And, um, you know, if you wait till they go dormant in the fall, Uh, that's a perfect time, any time between when they go dormant in the fall to where they break dormancy in the spring. All in there is a great time to either sell them or give them away or transplant them somewhere else or what have you. But that's that's really the, the, the easy answer, and it's the way most big nurseries work, except they have like fields of like sandy soil or whatever instead of a couple beds, uh, like a backyard nurseryman might have. Um After that, if you aren't ready for them to go to their final home yet, you're either going to have to get really deep sand that they can go into, and, be, and it's probably not in the best interest of the plants to go much longer than a, a one season, um, or you're going to have to put them into large nursery containers, five, ten gallons, maybe more, uh, and continue to grow them out the way that you see them in, 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 in stores or what have you. And, of course, a bigger tree sells for more money, but you have to spend more time taking care of it, uh, what have you. And the other problem is the bigger the container and the bigger the tree, the more those roots hit the edge of the container and circle and girdle, which is why I prefer to buy trees when I can that have been grown in sand beds and fertile, loose, friable soils as bare roots where they've been uprooted and, and, and pruned nicely and shipped off. That's And it's pruned as little as possible. Um, you can go a season and a half you, in, in, a, in a big enough bed. Um, it's just every... The longer they're there, the deeper they go. And both the Antonovka apple and uh, the the oaks have tap roots. And the oak more than the Antonovka. Uh, an Antonovka root system looks like a giant carrot with a big spreading root system above it. The uh, oak, uh, somewhat more of the same. Um, an oak, given enough time to get to be a five-foot tree, it will probably drive a five-foot tap root. So even if you're in a couple feet of, of a friable mix to remove that tree from, what you're going to have to have to do is pull all of the stuff from around it and, and prune that taproot, and it will never be the same again. Um, so you got to decide what's your, what's your ultimate goal and when is it going to happen uh, for these things. And uh, the oaks, even in the type of system I described, you may end up finding yourself having a pruned taproot. The, the speed at which a young oak puts down a taproot is really, really impressive. 
the nice thing about growing them just to fall in a grow bed, though, is you'll have a dormant tree that you can dig up, put some wet stuff around the roots, wrap up, and ship anywhere you want to. And it, it'll adapt really, really well. And even if you do end up, you know, damaging the taproot a little bit or whatever, if it's pruned off right and planted right, it will be fabulous in the long run. It'll be a tough little tree. You can also space them about an inch and a half apart. Two inches is plenty. Because they're not going to get that big in that first season. They're going to be a little bitty whip at the end of the first year with a few branches on it. So they'll be small. They'll be easy to ship. You can put a lot in a grow bed. If you space cuttings at one inch, you can fit almost 10,000 cuttings in a 4x8 bed. So let's say we space them at two inches. You're going to still be able to put four or 5,000 trees So if you have 400 trees, two-inch spacing, you have plenty of room in, in a grow bed designed like that. So for the backyard nurseryman, it's probably more than you want to grow uh, that can fit in a couple beds. So that's how I would approach this. But again, you got to start thinking to yourself, what, what is the what is the eventual home of these things? Are you going to give them away? Are you going to sell them? Are you going to gorilla garden plant them somewhere? What have you? If you're going to gorilla garden plant them, take them there now. Take them there now. Put them in the ground while they're little. They won't be seen, what have you. Uh, they'll have a better chance of making it. If you're going to, to sell them, give them away, people tend to like to buy trees a little more size on them. So, yeah, grow them out that half year. Anyway, enjoyed answering everybody's questions today. Hopefully everybody uh, enjoyed today's show. I will say again, mentioning the weather, uh, the outlook for today uh, for the middle of the United States and then moving east tomorrow is a lot of severe weather. We're kind of on the back edge of the warning where I'm at, so I'm hoping we don't get too much of it. It's rained all morning already. There's big cloud cover. The dry line is clearly not here. It's clearly east of here or west of here, and I think it's east of here. So for that reason, it's probably better for me personally, but I think people just, you know, halfway to Dallas from me may be in a, in a lot more risk of, of severe blowups of tornadoes anyway. I think we're all under risk of hail. That can do a lot of damage to your plants and stuff like that. There's not a lot you can do about it. Um, and then you know, serious winds and flooding uh, are a real potential. So remember, there's a reason we prep, uh, and then there's a certain level of time where we've done all we can, and we just have to be smart about dealing with Mother Nature. And I think that's that's what many people are going to be dealing with today and through the weekend. And then Monday, it kind of flares back up, and then we get a break for a while here in the south uh, uh, from some of this, it seems like. But we can God sure use the rain, but the uh, severe weather potentials out there, Uh, specifically those of you that are going to be spending today's rush hour on the roads. Think about that. Check the weather before you leave. Have plans uh, where if things get severe or there's a warning, where between where you are going and where you're coming from, could you uh, take shelter? Please do that. Uh, proper planning can save lives. And, be, you know, we had a call today from Jesse in California about, like, when you feel like you need to go to the hospital, go to the hospital. When you feel you need to take shelter, take shelter. Uh, find a big, sturdy building, get inside. Uh, you do not want to be in your car in the middle of a tornado. It's, it's not a good thing. If you're in doubt about your ability to beat a weather system in the slightest home, you're probably better off staying where you are waiting for it to pass through. You, you really are... Uh, I know we can't do that for every storm in every situation, but that's why I say to monitor it. And is it just rain and, and some wind, or is it potential tornadoes and severe warnings and flash flooding and you're going through ditches and low spots on the way home and all? You know, use some some intelligence here, guys, and think about this. 
Uh, we want everybody to uh, to be able to show up Monday morning and have another great episode with your feedback. And remember, Monday, our feedback shows, you send me emails, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Make sure TSPC is in the subject line. I'll try to get them on the show for you Monday. I'll tell you, it's going to be tough to get them in over the weekend. I got a lot of great stuff already lined up for Monday. Uh, I had a great time going through your calls today. These were great calls. Keep them coming. Uh, thanks for a great week once again. Thanks for all you guys do to support me and my family and my efforts with the Survival Podcast. I hope to see many of you in West Virginia very, very soon. Uh, you can register for that event. Also, I'll let you know that we do have Phase 1 approved for Alcoa for the big project for Permaethos in conjunction with Mark Shepard there. And I will be going to uh, Arkansas for that installation of Phase 1 for the first week of uh, May. So uh, we've got a lot of stuff going on. Again, thank you. Have a great day. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, hoping you, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares, they're living for